Our Father and our God, we come to you in Jesus' name. God, we thank you for the rain, Lord, and keeping us safe uh, in it. And God, uh, <clears throat> uh, as we just look at this chapter today, or just this story of rain and the blessings that come with that, um, we just want to thank you for all of your provision in our lives, Lord. And uh, just to, for bringing us here together as friends and uh, old friends, new friends, and uh, enjoying one another. And mostly, Lord, enjoying you and your word. And we pray that uh, you would open our hearts to receive that which we couldn't even receive in our own flesh, but requires you, Lord, to um, just open up our minds and our eyes and our hearts to see what you would have us to see. So we ask you to bless us in this way now, for your name's sake. Amen. Amen. All right. So chapter 18 starts. <clears throat> came to pass after many days. How many are those many days? Well, it says the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year. Now, what do you remember about uh, the third year? It started our Elijah story in chapter 17 last week. Was he said there'll be no rain, right? <clears throat> What's that? For three and a half years, okay? So it came to uh, pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year. So here we are saying, go present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the earth. So again, you get that third year or third day theme going here. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab, and there was a severe famine in Samaria. And Ahab had called Obadiah, who was in charge of his house. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly, for it was while Jezebel, she's married to Ahab, for it was while Jezebel massacred the prophets of the Lord that Obadiah had taken 100 prophets and hidden them, 50 to a cave, and had fed them with bread and water. Now, Obadiah gets introduced here into the story. And as soon as it introduces Obadiah, it immediately stops, gives you this parentheses about him to tell you a little bit more about them now for obadiah it's pretty good isn't it it says you know here's obadiah and then it says now understand this about obadiah feared the lord greatly and then did an amazing thing right he as jezebel is trying to eliminate the prophets of israel from israel she's slaughtering them he hides at the risk of his own life because remember he works for her husband right he works for her husband and he takes a hundred of these prophets and he hides them in two cage, caves, 50 prophets to a cave, and feeds them and cares for them. And so he gets this parenthesis to celebrate him. And I love that because he's a servant in this house. And yet he gets these parentheses to praise him. Because normally we don't look to the servants to find praiseworthy stuff, do we? Okay. So uh, he has this parentheses in his life. And that's the type of thing I'll always write in my Bible when I see stuff like that. And I'll ask, what's my parentheses? If I got introduced by the inspired word of God to a group of people and I gave parentheses, what's filling in those parentheses? Well, it's kind of up to you, isn't it? It's kind of up to you what fills that parentheses. But what's, what is the foundation of his great... Um, celebration that God gives him here. It's he feared the Lord greatly, right? In other words, he wouldn't dare 
go against the Lord's will, even to do his own will. That's what it means to fear the Lord. It means, why would I do this against the Lord, knowing who he is? Knowing who he is makes a big difference. So he gets this wonderful parenthesis in his life. And uh, verse 5 says, And Ahab said, had said to Obadiah, Go into the land to all the springs of water and to all the brooks. Perhaps we may find grass to keep the horses and mules alive so that we will not have to kill any livestock. So they divided the land between them to explore it. Ahab went one way by himself and Obadiah went another way by himself. So the, the, the drought of three years paying a huge toll, uh, looking for any signs of uh, grass or any uh, nourishment for the livestock at all, anywhere. So they go their separate ways to seek this out. Verse seven, now as Obadiah was on his way, suddenly Elijah met him and he recognized him and fell on his face and said, is that you, my Lord, Elijah? Now what comes as part of fearing the Lord like Obadiah does? Well, Obadiah holds a high position in the king's house, but his name Obadiah means servant of Yahweh, servant of the Lord is what his name means. So he lives up to his name. Now, when you read this story, it's a great story about Elijah, maybe his greatest story about Elijah. And people will quickly read through, I mean, I've certainly been guilty of it, uh, read through the Obadiah thing just to get to the Elijah thing. Everything seems to be about Elijah. But I just want to stop and point out that Obadiah is a servant in the king's court, yet his name means servant of the Lord. So where is his loyalties going to lie when those things oppose each other? To the master he can see or to the master who he can't see? Not everyone is called <coughs> to be an Elijah, are they? In fact, very few people are called to be an Elijah. But everybody is called to be an Obadiah in the sense of remaining faithful, even in a faithless context. So even if you work for somebody like Ahab, even if where you work is completely anti-God or evil, you have the same calling upon your life to fear the Lord as Obadiah did, to follow the Lord as Obadiah did, and to remain faithful, even if the context that you're living in is not. Verse 8, and he answered him, it is I, go tell your master, Elijah is here. So he said, how have I sinned that you are delivering your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my master has not sent someone to hunt for you. And when they said he's not here, he took an oath from the kingdom or nation that they could not find you. So once Elijah declared last chapter that there'd be no rain in the land, what has Ahab been up to the last three years? Sending people everywhere to find Elijah, right? But I think it's verse 3 of the last chapter, chapter 17, where God said to Elijah, go to the brook and hide yourself. Okay. Now, we know the verse that says, uh, when God uh, opens a door, no man can close it, right? Well, when God hides a man, nobody can find him, correct? Here's a king, 
with all the resources of the king, spending years not even letting national boundaries stop him, can't find Elijah. And then here's the next thing he hears. He's going to hear Obadiah say, hey, Elijah's here. Okay, with all that searching and all that, everything, he just all of a sudden is going to be told by a servant that Elijah's here. Um, but look at Obadiah's reaction. It says, when I say that he's not here, he, he took an oath from that kingdom or nation that they could not find you. And now you say, go tell your master Elijah's here. It shall come to pass as soon as I am gone from you that the spirit of the Lord will carry you to a place that I do not know. So when I go to tell Ahab and he cannot find you, he will kill me. What does Obadiah know about God here that makes him say something like that? That God's going to protect his own, right? So all he can see is that Ahab wants to kill Elijah. Now Elijah's here. And when I go to let Ahab know that Elijah's here, God's going to protect him because Ahab wants to kill him. And he's going to move him away from here. And I'm not going to be able to find him. And then Ahab's going to kill me. Okay? So part of Obadiah's fear of the Lord is knowing that the Lord will indeed protect his own. And he knows that Elijah will be delivered from evil. Isn't that exactly what Jesus tells you to pray? In the Lord's Prayer, one of those lines is what? Deliver us from evil. You know what it actually says in the Greek? Deliver us from the evil one. Okay, deliver us from the evil one, which, of course, means you'll be delivered from evil. Correct? So, um, Obadiah knows those things about God. So, sometimes people will say, hey, should I do this? Should I do that? What will God have me do? What will God have me do? Listen. Of course, nobody knows all the direct answers God is going to give for your questions. But what Scripture does is reveal the character of God to you so that you know what his character would be in your very situation. So you can know an answer from that. Um, God does not change, does he? So although Obadiah knows God delivers from evil, and he's going to deliver him. Of course, Obadiah doesn't know that God has sent Elijah there. He's going to find that out. Um, and here's what happens. I think I'm in the middle of 12. But I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Was it not reported to my Lord what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord? How I hid 100 men of the Lord's prophets? 50 to a cave and fed them with bread and water. And now you say, go tell your master Elijah's here. He will kill me. Then Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts live before whom I stand, I will surely present myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. Then it happened when Ahab saw Elijah that Ahab said to him, is that you, O troubler of Israel? Why is he calling them that? They have been in drought for three years, right? They are running out of food. And what does Ahab know? It was at the word of Elijah, right? So, isn't that pretty clear evidence that God is working through Elijah? Wouldn't that make you want to say, that would be a good guy to be friendly with, right? You would think, but it, it just doesn't happen in human hearts that way, does it? So, he said, is that you, O troubler of Israel? Now, 
What did Obadiah say when he saw Elijah in verse 7? He said, is that you? Did he say, O troubler of Israel? He said, is that you, my Lord? Now, the Lord there means more master than the heavenly divine Lord. But just look at one who fears the Lord. The Bible promises um, that they'll see, that they'll hear, that to not fear the Lord causes blindness and deafness. Uh, not, of course, literally, but spiritually. And you can't uh, even discern who a man or a woman of God is. Okay, Obadiah knows Elijah is. Uh, he says, is that you, um, my, is that you, Elijah, my Lord? And what, is, uh, what does Ahab say? Is that you, O troubler of Israel? Right? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, and that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and have followed the Baals. Now, that is severe condemnation. That is severe judgment. There's not much worse you could say to a king than you've led an entire nation into false worship, false gods. Nothing much worse than you could say than that. He condemns them that. And what does verse 19 say? Is it a call for judgment now? No, listen to what he says. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me on Mount Carmel, the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. This idea of eating at Jezebel's table means you guys are really in intimate with these false prophets. They dine with you, right? Now, who's Jezebel? She's the daughter of a foreign king. This is exactly Solomon's fall, isn't it? Marrying these foreign women and worshiping their gods and so forth. Now you see Ahab doing that uh, with Jezebel. And <clears throat> so instead of, hey, you've led Israel astray, you've led them to false worship, you've taken them from the true God to a false God, now you're judged. Here's what he says. Listen, go gather all the prophets that represent the gods that you're worshiping. Bring them up on a mountain. I want you to see something. Do you see the offer for repentance here? See the offer for him to see with his own eyes, right? See, I'm going to show you with your own eyes the true God, okay? Wouldn't you think that would work? What did Jesus have to say about this? Jesus talks about the power of this Bible. Because he says, he'll, he'll say uh, to, to the rich man who's in Sheol, uh, and Lazarus is in Abraham's bosom, and the rich man wants uh, Lazarus to be able to go to his five brothers to warn him about this awful place of torture and torment. And Abraham says, no, because they have Moses and the prophets. If they don't believe them, then they won't believe even if somebody rises from the dead. I said, how could you not believe if somebody rose from the dead? Do you know that there were Pharisees that sought to kill Lazarus? You know why? Because he rose from the dead. He was too strong of a witness. How could you look at a man risen from the dead and go, we got to kill him? Wouldn't you be scared he'd get up again? <laughs> right? Wouldn't that freak you out a little bit? Okay. So, listen. What, it, what, what is this saying? This is saying that if you believe, then you can actually see things that the unbeliever cannot see. Anybody have an experience like that? It's called watching the news. Right? You can see things that they cannot see. The Bible's crystal clear about that. 
What is Isaiah's entire mission? To blind people that can see and, and deafen people that can hear so that they can't see and can't hear. And nobody that Isaiah talks with goes literally blind or deaf. So is he a terrible prophet or does it mean something else? It means that you can't see spiritual truths anymore. You just cannot see them. And we're going to get more into that uh, as we go. 20. So Ahab sent for all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel. And Elijah came to all the people and said, How long would you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people answered him not a word. Now, I can't tell you how much I think that just said. I, I can't. I'll try, but I can't. He says, how long will you waver between two opinions? And to me, the two opinions are this. It's God or, never mind Baal. It's God or it's every single other way the world offers, period. Okay. A couple weeks ago, I read from um, Isaiah 45. And how many times in that chapter does God say, I am the Lord and there is no other. I am the Lord and there is no other. Over and over and over again. Here you hear Elijah saying, listen, if God, if the Lord is God, follow him. If it's Baal, and I want to just say, if it's anything else but God, then follow that. But the people answered him not a word. <clears throat> so here's what I wrote about this. Two opinions. He says, why do you falter between two opinions? Two opinions have the same effect as no opinion at all. All worldviews are by nature mutually exclusive. In other words, people say, oh, you Christians think your way is the only way. You know what? The person that said that thinks their way is the only way. Okay? They think I'm wrong for holding my position because I don't hold their position and their position is right. Okay? Everybody, period, thinks their way is the right way. Even if somebody says, I think all roads lead to heaven. That means their way is right and my way is wrong. Because my way says not there's only one way to heaven. Okay? And so does uh, Islam and so does Judaism. And, and uh, so every single person's idea about ultimate truth is exclusive. Everybody's. Even those that say my view of truth is that all truth is right. Well, then you think everybody disagrees with you is wrong. So you think your way is the only right way. So... All worldviews are by nature mutually exclusive. Tolerance for them in the name of relativism is a sentencing to automatically and always being wrong. Period. To sit on the proverbial fence as a Christian when it comes to living life God's way in all circumstances, compared to becoming comfortable with personal justifications for your disobedience, is having two opinions about God. Every sin is an opinion about God that he doesn't mean what he says about that sin. Here Elijah asked, how long will you falter between two and your opinions? The Lord is God, follow him. But the people answer not a word. So how did I start this? Two opinions have the effect of no opinion at all. They have nothing to say whatsoever. Now, if you've had my apologetics class, you've heard this, but... I should say, and, listen, when you, as I just mentioned, how 
the Bible, the Bible provides vision for spiritual matters. The, the Bible provides hearing for spiritual matters. You, as a true believer, see and hear things that somebody that doesn't believe Jesus Christ doesn't hear and doesn't see. Okay, so um, you know I, I teach at a covenant school, and every high schooler is supposed to have a confession of faith. They're supposed to be saying, "I follow Jesus Christ, and I want to be discipled." But the fact of the matter is, at least half of them aren't saved. It's just how it is. And the fact of the matter is, is um, it's not entirely their fault. Uh, it, it, they it, they can't see what the other kids see. They can't hear what the other kids hear. And because we have the assumption that they're saved, we teach in a way that saved kids will understand. But they're not going to get it. And it's not designed for them to get They need to hear the gospel, not apologetics, not, not, not worldviews or world religions. They need to hear the gospel. It's the only thing that will give, give them the sight or the hearing to understand anything else. So it's a very difficult situation. Now, how extreme can this get? Well, it could easily become a matter of life and death. Having one's own belief system or any other belief system other than Christian theism leads to things like this. Princeton professor and Darwinist Peter Singer, he used Darwinism to assert that the life of a newborn child is of less value than the life of a pig, a dog, or a chimpanzee. As a consequence, he believes that parents should be able to kill their newborn infants until they are 28 days old. But why the randomness of 28 days? His worldview would allow murder at any age because he does not acknowledge a moral lawgiver. James Rachels, who wrote the book Created from Animals, The Moral Implications of Darwinism, believes that humans have no more inherent value than animals and says of mentally handicapped humans, what are we to say about them? The natural conclusion, natural conclusion, according to the doctrine we are considering, which is Darwinism, will be that their status is that of mere animals. And perhaps we should go on to conclude that they may be used as non-human animals are used, perhaps as laboratory subjects or as food. That's what he says of the mentally handicapped. Why? Can't see what you see can't hear what you hear. If God is the Lord, then follow him. Doesn't mean just mentally assent to he's there. Follow him. Author Randy Thornhill and Craig Palmer claim the following about rape. They say it's a natural biological phenomenon that is a product of the human evolutionary heritage, just like the leopard spots or the giraffe's elongated neck. The Darwinist conclu conclusions about murder and rape are consistent with a worldview where all behaviors are genetically determined. He'll go on to say that rape is actually a virtue rather than a vice because it's survival of the fittest. Survival is determined by your ability to reproduce yourself so if you're stronger than a woman and she says no, she's denying you your status as a top of the chain and you shouldn't allow her to say no. Okay, how's that for the Me Too movement going to be? Okay. 
Um, I had to pull up this quote because I did not want to misquote this one in case any of you are still not appalled. Um, this is very recent, it was on the news. It's a quote from a feminist author uh, named Uh, her name comes up, oh, Sophie Lewis. She says this, we're facing a really terrifying attack on abortion. In the past, the strategies that our side has tended to use has included a kind of seeding of grounds or enemies. We say, luckily it's not killing. Luckily it's just a healthcare issue. We have very little to lose at the moment when it comes to abortion and I'm interested in winning radically. In other words, she's saying, pro-life movement's making a lot of ground. We gotta do some radical stuff. She says this, abortion, in my opinion, and I recognize how controversial this is, is a form of killing. It's a form of killing that we need to be able to defend. She goes on to say, I'm not interested in where a human life starts to exist. How could you not be interested in that? It's the whole debate. I see forms of making and unmaking each other as a continuous process of making, what she mean by unmaking each other? It's a language of killing. I see we make each other and we unmake each other. Nobody's unmade her, right? <laughs> the other end of the spectrum is learning to die well and hold each other and let each other go at the end of our lives as well as at the beginning. Being able to hold each other at the beginning of our lives as we say goodbye. Um, this sounds ominous. Does Lewis, Lewis also support killing people who are old? What does she mean by unmaking each other? Clearly she feels that people have a right to kill others. Does this extend to anyone else in addition to the preborn and the elderly? Uh, Lewis makes this following bad argument. Here's, she, she's saying this, we, we have to win radically. So we, ha we, we have to admit that it's killing. We just gotta find a reason why we ought to be able to do this killing. She says this, but looking at the biology of the Hemochorial placentation helps me think about the violence that innocently a fetus meets out via via gestator. She's saying, think of the violence that child's doing to the mother inside of her. The, that violence is an unacceptable violence for someone who does not want to do gestational work. Pregnant woman says, I don't want to do this whole gestational thing and this baby's making me do it. That's what she's calling violence. The violence that the gestator meets out to essentially go on strike or exist or ex exit that workplace is an unacceptable violence. So abortion is acceptable violence because the baby is violent against the woman. Poisoning or dismembering a child is justified because a child is doing violence to the woman simply by being there when the child never asked to be there in the first place. Hey, listen, the scriptures allow you to see what others cannot see, to hear what others not here. There is a spiritual dimension to your scriptures. The Bible will say, who can know the mind of man except for the spirit that's in a man? Okay, so if you want to know what's on my mind, you have to ask me, right? So the same is true with God. Nobody can know the mind of God except for the spirit of God. And what do you receive upon salvation? Spirit of God to know the mind of God. It allows you to see what others cannot see and to hear what others cannot hear. That's why you've got to be in your Bible every day. Okay, you've got to be in your Bible every day. All right.
But the people answered in that order. Verse 22, then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. You know what that means? Saying, I'm all alone, they got 450, so it's not a fair fight. <laughs> they need more people. Okay. Therefore, let them give us two bulls and let them choose one bull for themselves. Cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire under it. And I'll prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood, but put no fire under it. Then you call on the name of your gods, and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. You know what he just kind of spoke of there? You know why? You want a good motivation to evangelize? Because God answers the, the unbeliever with fire, doesn't he? Okay. So all the people answered and said, it is well spoken. Now Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one bull for yourselves and prepare it first, for you are many. And call on the name of your God, but put no fire under it. So they took the bull which was given them, and they prepared it, and called on the name of Baal from morning till noon, saying, O Baal, hear us. But there was no voice, no one answered. Then exactly what we read when I went through Psalm, when I went through uh, um, Isaiah 45 again. God says, you make these idols and you give them mouths, but they don't speak. You give them ears, they can't hear. Okay, so, so, what, so what's Baal now? He's an idol. He's not answering. There's calling for him to hear, and he can't hear. Then they leaped about the altar which they had made. And so it was at noon. The Bible wants you to know the times. Okay? So it was at noon, which is in biblical terms the sixth hour, right? They start counting at 6 a.m. So the sixth hour would be high noon. So it was at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is meditating, or he's busy, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's sleeping and must be awakened. That's serious mocking, isn't it? So they cried aloud and cut themselves, as was their custom, with knives and lances until the blood gushed out on them. Now they believed that if they drew blood, that would incite Baal to answer. Okay, so they're cutting themselves up with swords and lances. They're all cut up and bloody, calling out to their false god. And when midday was passed, they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. What time is the offering? 3 p.m., the ninth hour. Okay, so from noon to 3, the 6th to the ninth hour, cut up and bloodied, calling out to their false god. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. I love that it does it three times for you. Okay? And Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. That's what I love about Christianity right there. Okay? It's very invitational, isn't it? How does a, how does a religion become the fastest growing in all history of any religion ever? And here's their strategy. Jesus is like, come and see. Elijah will say, come near to me. Very invitational, isn't it? And that's how it spread throughout the world like it did. So all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. 
And Elijah took 12 stones according to the numbers of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. Then with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. Let me say one more thing about this. Come near to me. Um, instead of telling Ahab, you created all this Baal worship, Asherah poles, all these things, and now you're going to be judged. He says to him, come and see, right? Get your prophets together. Come up on Mount Carmel. Come and see whose God is truly God, right? It's an opportunity for Ahab to go, wow, you were really right. We're changing everything now. We're going to follow God, right? But of course, that doesn't happen. It's very invitational. Now, we've talked a lot about your ability to see, correct? Jesus, when Lazarus dies, not the Lazarus with Abraham's bosom, his buddy, his friend, Mary and Martha's brother, Lazarus dies. Martha is crying to him. And Jesus says to her, I told you that if you believe that you would see the glory of God. Now, what do we like to say all the time? Seeing is believing, right? God has none of that. What did this say? If you believe, then you will see. Okay? That's why you need your scriptures. Okay? Believing is seeing. Thirty-three. He put the wood in order, cut the bowl in pieces, and laid it on the wood and said, Fill four water pots with water and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. Then he said, do it a second time. Why is he putting water on the sacrifice if he wants fire to consume it? The prophets of Baal are going, listen, we got no answer, but this guy is sabotaging himself. Isn't he? He's sabotaging himself. And then they pour water on it. They go, dude, that was so dumb. He goes, do it again. Do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. So the water ran all around the altar, and he also filled the trench with water. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and I am your servant. And I have done all these things at your word. Now I underline that at your word. Why? How did this whole thing start? Chapter 17, very beginning. Elijah said there will be no rain on this land except for at my word, right? Did it come true? Absolutely. Shouldn't Ahab be going, dude, when he says at his word, listen, it comes true, right? So here's another opportunity for repentance. Ahab should be clicking in. When he says it's his word or the Lord's word, it's going to be true. Here's another chance for repentance. Listen, I'm saying all this because of this. One of the number one unbelievers complaints against Christianity or, or the true God being a loving God is the problem of evil in the world, right? In the Bible, the Bible doesn't present a problem with evil. The Bible presents a problem of why is God so patient with the evil? Why are they given all these chances? Why are they invited up on this mountain with a chance to repent when they've caused so much damage? How many prophets have been massacred by Jezebel? And why are they given another chance? Why is God 
not acting out in, in anger towards them. Um, listen to uh, Psalm 37. Remember, a true Bible understanding asks the question, why is, so, why is God so patient with evil, not why is there evil? Psalm 37 says, Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity, for they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. That, that's your call in the midst of evil. Trust God. Do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your ways to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. This is a picture of you in the midst of an evil and perverse generation. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It only causes harm. For evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. For yet a little while, and the wicked shall be no more. Indeed, you will look carefully for his place, but it shall be no more. But the meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. The wicked plot against the just and gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him, for he sees that his day is coming. That's where your faith comes in. Okay. The wicked have drawn the sword and have bent their bow to cast down the poor and needy, to slay those who are upright of upright conduct. Their sword shall enter their own heart and their bows shall be broken. Now, the whole song goes on that way. But, you know, I just mentioned bows there. And I, I was sitting in a class today for seven hours on Isaiah. And the professor was actually showing um, things in Isaiah that we found in archaeology and things like this. And one of them is Cyrus's cylinder. It's a cylinder of Cyrus where he, it's the actual decree to send the Israel's back, Israelites back to uh, Israel. Okay? And it's on this cylinder because they would, they would carve it in the cylinder and then roll it in ink to, make, uh, uh, to, to have it write it out and so forth. And uh, we actually have that cylinder of that de decree. But he was showing these pictures on rock formations of peace treaties. They're not really peace treaties, but it's when you'll see King Hezekiah do it. You'll see all these Israelite kings do it when they're paying off. They're paying off another nation to protect them from enemies. They'll pay Assyria or Egypt or somebody to protect them from enemies. And so therefore, Israel becomes like a vassal state where they got to pay tribute to another king to keep them safe. And God always condemns them for not trusting him. Okay. And um, but, but when they draw these pictures of these peace treaties on stone, they always have the king who's being paid the tribute, the one that's being the protector. They always have him standing with a bow, a bow and arrow bow uh, in his hand. And it's, it's, and it's touching the floor and it's always facing him. It's never facing the other way. So what would that say to the person who's coming to him for protection? I'm not gonna harm you, my bow's not, my weapon's not facing you. It's actually facing me. So if I violate the treaty, you may come back on me, but you're safe. You know, you're gonna be protected. 
Now think to Genesis 9 for a second. Uh, what Genesis 9 does not say is God, God does not say I'm going to put my rainbow in the sky. Because Noah would say, what's a rainbow? And he didn't even know what rain was, right? The Hebrew word is just bow. It's talking about a bow and arrow bow. Now look at a rainbow. What's it look like? A bow and arrow bow, right? And which way is it pointing? Towards God. Not towards us. It's that peace treaty. Okay? It's almost as if God is saying, if I if I end the world by water again, I'll turn the weapon on myself. That's how sure it is that you're safe now. It's really neat. Nothing to do with this at all. Just, um, I wanted to make my seven hours in class today pay off a little bit. All right, now back to this. Um, <clears throat> Richard, where am I? I think you're at 28 or hadn't, hadn't quite finished 27. Which one? 27, I think. 37. 37. Well, I haven't got my glasses on. Okay. <laughs> yes, you do. They're right on your face. Yeah, it's wrong ones. Oh, okay. All right. I'm struggling here. All right, 36. We'll do it. It came to pass at the time of the offering for the evening sacrifice, we said that was three, that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God, of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, yep, here we are, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and I am your servant. Now, Obadiah came to us in this chapter as what? And Elijah as his Lord. Now, Elijah becomes servant to the real Lord, right? What does John the Baptist say about all this? I must decrease, he must increase. The prophets are always decreasing themselves. They're always trying to vanish. Okay, I'm going to get my money out of Isaiah again here. Um, first 39 chapters of Isaiah, Isaiah mentions his name 16 times. The last 27 chapters, zero. And guess who starts showing up in those last 27 chapters? It's a picture of Jesus. The prophet decreases. The, the true servant, Jesus Christ, increases. Okay. There's nothing. To, yeah, it has a little something to do with this. Okay. I've done all these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their backs to you again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked it up lift up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Remember that. We'll come back to that in a little while. Remember that. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal. There comes a time when your offer of repentance is retracted. Now it's time to seize them. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and executed them there. Now, where should the fire have fallen? On all of them. There's no one righteous, no, not even one. Everybody is either 
receiving the fire of God or being executed, or they've been spared. Okay? Nobody is standing on this mountain on its own righteousness. Okay? They were either spared because there was a sacrifice, or they didn't believe in that sacrifice and they weren't spared. Now, go with me to Mark's Gospel. Chapter 15. going, I don't know what, why I went here, but it's Matthew 15. i got to go to Mark. Right. Okay. <laughs> okay, now I get it. All right, Mark chapter 15. Let's see what we got here. We'll start in 21. No, we're not. We're going to start in, uh, well, just to be safe, let's start in 6. <laughs> Now at, the, <laughs> now at the feast, he was accustomed to releasing, this is Pilate, was accustomed to releasing one prisoner to them whom they requested. And there was one named Barabbas who was chained with his fellow rebels. They had committed murder in the rebellion. Then the multiple, multitude, crying aloud, began to ask him to do just as he had always done for them. But Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Pilate thought that would be an obvious yes. Because Barabbas is guilty of murder. Okay? For he knew that the chief priest had handed him over because of envy. So the guy, listen, they're, they're envious of Jesus. They're not going to kill him out of envy. Barabbas is a murderer. They'll want Jesus released. But no. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd so that he should release, rather release Barabbas to them. Pilate answered and said to them again, What then do you want me to do with him who's called king of the Jews? You know, what Barabbas, Bar means what in Hebrew, guys? Son, what is Abba? Father. So Barabbas' name means son of the father. So here's her choice. Do you want son of some father, or do you want son of the father to come back to you? So we'll take some of the son of some father. We don't want the son of God the father. So they cried out again, crucify him. The pilot said, why? What evil has he done? But they cried all, out all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them, and he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. Now, those are whips, right? Lots of bloodshed, correct? Then the soldiers led him away into the hall called the Praetorium, and they called together the whole garrison. And they clothed him with purple, and they twisted a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. Then they struck him on the head with a reed and spat on him. And bowing the knee, they worshipped him. And when they had mocked him, they took the purple off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him out to crucify him. Then they compelled a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, father of Alexander and Rufus. This Rufus shows up in the book of Acts, by the way. Comes a follower. I'm not book of Acts, book of Romans. Paul actually greets him. He greets Rufus. Um, and he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, 
which is translated place of the skull. Then they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. When they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. Now it was the third hour, and they crucified him. What time is that? The third hour. 9 a.m. Exactly when they started calling on Baal. Now watch. And the inscription of his accusation was written above the king of the Jews. With him, they also crucified two robbers, one on his right and the other on his left. So the scripture was fulfilled, which says that he was numbered with the transgressors. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who destroyed the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So mocking him. 9 a.m. Likewise, the chief priests also, mocking among themselves with the scribes, said, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. What's wrong with that? Wrong order. Do something that I can see and then I'll believe. Does it get a response? Even those who were crucified with him reviled him. Now when the sixth hour had come, what time is it? It's when they start cutting themselves up. There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. What time is that? That's what time they stopped. Why? This is the time of the offering, the sacrifice. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, this is the only quote we get from Jesus in Aramaic, which most scholars will tell you he probably spoke Aramaic the most, believe it or not. He would speak Greek to Gentiles, he would speak Hebrew to the priests and so forth, but Aramaic would be the, the typical language. But here we get his Aramaic. Why? Why here? Does it stay in Aramaic? Because something just happened. He says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Some of those who stood by when they heard that said, look, he's calling Elijah. That's what they thought the Eloi was. Elijah, Elijah. Okay. Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink, saying, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come and take him down. You see, Mark presents his gospel as a battle between who is a prophet of Baal and who is a prophet of God. Is Jesus a prophet of God? Or as the Pharisees said, he doesn't drive out demons by the power of God. He drives them out by the power of deals of Baal, right? So they accuse him of being a prophet of Baal. Now, if Jesus is a prophet of Baal, that makes the Pharisees the one who came in the spirit and power of Elijah. Because that's who Elijah is the, who opposes the prophets of Baal, right? Okay, so it's a battle between who's in the role of Elijah and who's in the role of a prophet of Baal. Now, from noon to three, the prophets of Baal are cut up and bloodied and calling out to a false god. 
Jesus is now cut up and bloody. And they hear him call out to God. And when they hear him call out to God, they go, it's like them saying, he looks like a false prophet of Baal, all cut up and bloody. And he's calling out to God, who we don't think is going to answer, just like he did, Baal didn't answer their prophets. He's looking like a false prophet of Baal, isn't he? Okay. And so what do they say? Let's see if Elijah comes and rescues him. Okay. It's totally tying into 1 Kings 18, isn't it? Okay. Now, Jesus dies. So how do you think those guys walked away? Pretty smug, right? Pretty smug. Probably a pretty good Friday night for them. Pretty good Saturday. Then the party was over Sunday morning. Right? Okay. Um, and remember when Ahab sent people everywhere, even across national boundaries, to find them? Has anybody found this body of Jesus anywhere? Okay. He is not here. He is risen. Um, let us see if Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that, he saw that, he cried out like this and breathed his last. He said, truly this man was the son of God. Now who has he become? The centurion. He's become follower of Elijah. Why? What did the followers of Elijah say when the sacrifice got consumed? He is God. The Lord is God. The Lord is God. What does this guy say? Truly this man was the son of God. He's become follower of Elijah, the true Elijah, Jesus Christ. Um, <clears throat> But this is only for those who have eyes to see, correct? Um, and whenever I talk about this, I always want to mention just how significant um, this ability to see that I'm talking about is. Because what's hanging over Jesus' head right now on that cross? This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Go back to Matthew's Gospel. What was the question of the Magi to Herod? Where is he who's been born the king of the Jews? And that doesn't get answered until he looks like a false prophet of Baal. Why? Because if you want to see to believe, you're going to go, false prophet of Baal, look at him. He's a mess. But if you believe, then what do you see on that cross? That is the king of all kings. That is... God in the flesh taking my sin upon him so that I will not be consumed with fire, but I can live with him eternally. Can you see it? Okay, let's pray. Father God, in Jesus' name, Lord, always give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, humble our hearts even now. Lord, anything that has to do with pride or arrogance, Lord, we pray that you would kill it, consume it. Let us walk humbly before you, Lord. Lord, you are greater than we've ever given you credit for, than any hymn has ever sung or any praise has ever, any hallelujah that's gone up, Lord, you're greater than all of that. And who are we, Lord, to stand in your good graces as sinners? But you're pleased, Lord, 
to offer up your son in our place. So we pray, Lord, that we would honor him every way we know how. And Lord, it would be just who we are as far as following you, obeying you, trusting you with our entire lives, Lord, knowing that there are some things that we wish just never happened or we don't understand. But we have you and we trust you. So help us to carry on, Lord, and to move forward, to come and see all that you would have us to see, to draw near to you, Lord, because you have first drawn near to us. Thank you for loving us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.